Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week of this podcast alternates between a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship and its implications in the K-12 and K-8 space, and an interview with a guest. This week's particular episode is an interview with Siobhan Grady. In this episode, we discuss the importance of self-care and healthy boundaries, the impact of education, misconceptions and problematic assumptions people make about HBCUs, misconceptions and misunderstandings of being a professor in CS and CS education, lessons learned using machine learning to identify authorship of tweets, exploring the implications of social media and technology with students, the intersections of arts and CS, improving equity and inclusion in computing through action, and so much more. We do mention several other resources and podcasts and websites in this particular episode, so make sure you check out the show notes, which you can find by clicking the link in your description or simply going to jaredoleary.com. With that being said, I hope you enjoy this interview with Siobhan, which will now begin with an introduction. My name is Siobhan Grady. I'm an assistant professor at North Carolina Central University in the School of Library and Information Sciences. I am a computer scientist. I happen to graduate from three HBCUs, otherwise known as historically black colleges or universities. I was the first woman to get a PhD in computer science from North Carolina A&T State University. Very proud of that. I also graduated from the department that I now work in, got my master's in information science, and I got my bachelor of science in computer science from Winston-Salem State University. So I did all the schooling, all the things, and I'm excited to be a part of the department that I graduated from. So that means a lot to me. Outside of that, I'm a researcher in artificial intelligence. So I do work with machine learning. I look to see if I can identify authorship of a tweet to hopefully help us. And we've seen that given these times, help us identify malicious sources that might be propagating through the social media or web. I also do machine learning, apply it to autonomous vehicles. Additionally, I'm now doing work in STEM identity. So I'm doing outreach with middle school girls to help them develop a STEM identity and get some confidence and hopefully want to pursue STEM in the future. So those are a few things about me and the work that I do. Oh, I forgot one thing. Key thing. I'm also a triple AS which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, if then ambassador. And so I am now a national role model for STEM. Very proud of that because hopefully this year, given if things get better, they will be unveiling the largest exhibit of women statues in the U.S. So that's something that I'm proud of. There's a statue that will be there in my likeness. And I do a lot of outreach efforts. I've been doing it for years before the ambassadorship. I'll do it even beyond this ambassadorship. I love helping people, especially get into STEM or computer science and just making it more tangible. Sometimes people need to see someone that looks like them. And sometimes you're even touching lives of people that don't look like you because we never know who we're reaching. So that's a little bit about me and my passions and what I do and all the things that I love. I have so many questions about the statue. That sounds fascinating. Like, I'm just curious, like, are they going to go in and do like a scan that goes all around you matrix style or like just take pictures or? (laughs) Yes. And November of 2019, we, so when I say we, the ambassadors, they picked, I think it's 125 of us, women in STEM. They flew us to Dallas, Texas. First time in Dallas. It's a beautiful place. And they did a 3D scan of each one of us. And the statues, You can even see what they look like now on a website, ifthencollection.org. You can go there and see all of the statues of the 125 scientists. 
it's an electronic press kit. So basically you can go there, see videos of me, photos, and also see the statue and also see a CV. And that's for each one of the scientists. And the reason why they did that is because normally when someone Googles science or scientists, it was always a man that popped up. And so triple AS, and if then they wanted to change that narrative so that when you type in a computer scientist, maybe someone like me might pop up or someone else other than just a man. And so nothing wrong with men, but we want things to be equitable and for people to see not only a man, a woman, but maybe see a black woman or a Latina woman or man. We want to change and make things more inclusive so that people can truly believe and see that it's feasible. That's great. Can you tell me the story of how you became the first woman to get a PhD in computer science from your university? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the PhD program was fairly new, but I was not the first woman or female to be in the program, but I was the first one to finish. So how did that happen? It happened with lots of determination, with being steadfast and, you know, staying the course. When I went back to get my PhD, I had actually quit my job. I was already in my career. So before PhD, I was actually a database developer, very happy with my job. But I realized a long time ago that I wanted to get my PhD. I love technology, but I also love helping people. And to me, a professorship is the best way to get the best of both worlds. And so when I went back, my only goal, because I was an older student, was to graduate. (laughs) That was it. I'm like, I've quit my full-time job. I'm now this stipend. So my lifestyle had to change because I was not a working professional. Stipend didn't necessarily cover everything that I may have been used to as a working professional. And that actually motivated me to finish, to get back to, when I'm saying the real world, get back to society and, you know, making a living. So I think by me being an older student, and when I say older, just early thirties, that just spurred me to keep hitting the pavement. And I think that tenacity, that steadfastness is what helped me get to the finish line because I was already organized, goal-oriented, and I knew how to advocate for myself. And I can attribute that to being a working professional, having some years of experience, and that got me to the finish line. It wasn't until the day that I did my final defense that I realized the magnitude of what it meant to be the first woman to graduate from the program. And I must say that North Carolina a showed me so much love and I didn't know how many people I inspired because my goal was to only finish because so many people don't finish PhD. I didn't want that to happen. So I just kept pushing myself. And once I graduated, I got to meet so many people that I've inspired and I mentor a lot of people who are pursuing PhD and help them navigate through because again, everybody, when they start their PhD program, they may be at a different point in their life. And for me, I was, you know, like I said, I quit my job and I had just left the workforce. So my mindset may be different than someone who just went straight through school. Yeah. There's so many pressures internally, externally, monetarily, et cetera, going through the PhD. Like one year on my tax return, I made a total of $4,000 while I was like working on my PhD. You can't survive off $4,000 in Phoenix. So there's so many things like pushing you to try and finish it or drop out. It's so difficult. One of the videos on your website, you had mentioned that if you were to speak to your younger self, you would tell her that she's powerful and that she needs to burn brighter when other people are trying to diminish her light. So I'm curious whether it be through your process going through the PhD or just even just as a general recommendation, what would you recommend for other CS professionals or educators who 
run into these obstacles that might diminish their light or extinguish their light? I think something that's key is some people call it finding their tribe. And even a more general term is support system. One thing that really has helped me not only navigate PhD, but life is my support system. And that encompasses definitely family. My parents play an integral role in who I am. They keep me grounded. Also some friends and also mentors. If you can find a mentor, someone that can help guide you, that's helpful too, because then you can bounce things off. Uh, The key is not taking ownership of things that don't belong to you. You have to recognize when someone is telling you something from a place of wisdom and trying to help you. And then you need to realize when someone's coming from a place of trying to hurt you and whatever it may be, if it's someone trying to hurt you, it's like it goes in one ear and out the other. You don't even take it. You don't own it because sometimes what that will do is start replaying in your mind over and over again. And it doesn't belong to you. Go to your support system, talk to them about it to get perspective. And if other people are reassuring you that this not you is that other person, believe them and move forward. Drop it and move forward. I must say people do say things. Uh, that's for everyone. People say things. But you have to, again, have a support system, people who can help keep you grounded, help keep you focused on the journey. Because if you're an educator, we're supposed to be helping and mentoring and inspiring others. And it's hard to do that when we're not in the mental space to do that. So we just have to keep one another lifted. And with that being said, also be kind to your peers and colleagues. Don't you be the one that's toxic and delivering words that are unkind. But I think having that support system or tribe of people who can help keep you grounded and who you can bounce ideas off of is essential to remembering who you are. And I think all of us have a wonderful light burning inside of us that the world should see. Yeah. And you're part about educators mentoring others. So we need to take care of ourselves. That's one of the reasons why I ask the question of every guest of like, how do you prevent burnout and whatnot? Because it's so important that we help ourselves in order to be able to help other people. Yeah, that's a great question. If 2020 taught me anything, it was how to have healthy boundaries. And boundaries are not only for personal, they are professional too. And I know that's hard for some people given whatever job they may have, but it is important that you let people know when they're overstepping a boundary. For instance, if someone's asking you to meet at a time that you already have booked for something else, then you just tell them no. You don't double book yourself. I think a lot of times we're trying to please other people. And in the end, we're hurting ourselves. So I would say implement boundaries, practice self-care. I didn't realize up until last year that many people don't even do self-care. Self-care is loving yourself. Loving yourself might mean an hour in the morning each day before you get started, where you just meditate or reflect or whatever. That is your time or in the evening or going walking or taking a bath. Uh, lighting candles, whatever it takes, that is a part of self-care. And I think that in order to have more balance, we have to realize when we're actually just doing too much. And that would also require looking at a planner. If all of the hours in the day are booked up with work, you're not doing it right. (laughs) We're not robots. We are meant to get sleep. And that's another thing. When we don't get the proper rest, we're not at our best either. When we're not hydrated, getting our proper rest, it starts coming out in other areas. So I would just say for me, one thing that I do is I implement boundaries. 
I practice self-care, loving myself. That could be me going on a daily walk or like I said, an hour in the morning or evening, just with myself, just unwinding, reflecting. And that's what has helped me tremendously. Yeah, that really resonates. The first therapist that I saw during my undergrad recommended that I do time blocking. So just going through and like, here's minute by minute what I'm going to do throughout the day. And the first time I did that, I realized, oh, I start my day at 6 a.m., like teaching drumline, and then my final class ends at 9 o'clock at night, and I have a 10-minute break at one point in the day where I'm not traveling between classes or school or whatever. That's not healthy. (laughs) So learned how to, like, I need to schedule in time off on my calendar, or it's not going to happen, at least with my personality. So definitely agree with that. It's helpful. When you start looking at it on paper, like I said, in the planner, that's when you realize, wow, (laughs) I'm doing this wrong. And I think we've all been guilty of that for sure. So I'm curious, working in CS education, what was something that you first believe, but you no longer believe now? I guess I wasn't sure about what type of impact that I could make or how important it is. Sometimes, at least in computer science, sometimes some researchers don't view certain areas as technical as others. And I think that CS education is so important because that is the beginning. That is people developing and helping people get into this field. So I would say that's even more technical (laughs) and more important than anything, because if we're not developing great CS students, What does the rest of it look like? So I think that was a misconception based on some things I had heard. And then just seeing the impacts of working in CS education, also being a professor, doing outreach, how powerful it is to share the knowledge that I have in computer science with others and watch them grow and develop those skills. I would say that was my biggest misconception that I know now wasn't true. Yeah, it's interesting how there's also that disconnect between like the different levels of education. Like there's a disconnect between K-12 and higher education, but then there's also a disconnect between like the 100 level courses and the graduate level courses in terms of like perceived priority or importance or whatever. Especially with K through 12, you know, that is so important because they're getting a head start to be in this field. Whereas I believe when I was in school, you know, all the opportunities that are now available, they weren't there for K through 12 like they are now. I think that's exciting. I'm glad that things are changing and evolving and people are finding ways to teach things in a way that work for all students. As we know now, people learn in different ways. So I'm in agreement. What about some misconceptions or problematic assumptions that people make about HBCUs? That it's a second class education. Like I'll give an example. I heard some things like, okay, so you went to an HBCU for undergrad, but now you need to go to a PWI. You don't need to do that because, you know, nobody's going to respect that. Or people telling young people don't go to HBCU there, you know, that degree doesn't mean anything or doesn't hold any weight. Those kinds of things are misconceptions. Specifically, a lot of times people think that everybody at the HBCU is Black. And and I think that's the biggest misconception. In my department right now, I'm the only Black tenure track faculty. (laughs) So, you know, I think people have these notions about who works there, what the student body looks like, what type of education is being delivered. And I think that people should open their eyes and open their hearts to 
again, being more inclusive, being open. And just because something is different doesn't mean that it's second rate or it's not as good. I just think we just know more about majority schools than we know about minority schools. Yeah. And just in case people aren't familiar with it, PWI is primarily a white institution. Just an FYI, if anyone's listening and unsure. What about, are there things that you wish more people understood with HBCUs? It's very much different. Some people may have heard about these things and they're at majority institutions too. Some have homecomings, but it's a cultural thing. You know, homecoming is essentially a reunion, basically, except it's not necessarily affiliated with a specific class reunion. It's almost a reunion to come back and celebrate your university together with all the people that were there when you were there. And most HBCUs, and I say most because North Carolina A&T State University is the largest HBCU in the nation. I think they have 12,000 students now, so it might be a little bit more difficult at A&T, but for Winston-Salem State University, where I got my undergraduate degree, there were not a lot of students. I think that it may have been 4,000 students when I was there. It may have been less than that. But with it being small like that, you kind of get to know everyone. I would say culturally, one difference at HBCUs is sometimes it can feel almost like a family because things are smaller in size. Your professors can really get to know you. You're not a number. For some people like myself, it can feel very welcoming. You know that people care about you. They know you by name. And that's not to say that that's not at majority institutions, but that is just one specific thing about HBCUs that I think a lot of people would be surprised about if they stepped on a campus and took a class. The type of education, how much their professor will be interested in who they are as a person. I think they'd be surprised. Yeah, some of my favorite classes were the ones that only had like five people in it in total. It just felt so much more intimate one-on-one with somebody who's an expert in their area, as opposed to the classes where there's like 50, 100 plus students, and then you are that number. Yeah, it's difficult because sometimes you want to spend time with your professor because they are the subject matter expert. You want to spend that time with them and get all that you can from them. But it is hard to do when it's larger classes. It really is. So speaking of being a professor, so one of your if then videos was talking about how you like to expand students' notions of like, what does it mean to be a professor of CS? Like, what can you actually do in that? So I'm wondering, like, what are some of the misconceptions or misunderstandings about being a professor in CES that you often dispel? I think that they think that all professors do is teach. And historically, a lot of HBCUs have been teaching institutions. However, many universities or HBCUs are moving towards research institutions. And North Carolina Central is no different in that regard. And so I think when they hear about what a PhD is, the research that I do they are typically fascinated. So I love to show them that, yes, I do teach, but I also do research and also do service. And service beyond committees, for them, I share with them the outreach that I do. And they love it. A lot of students are not exposed to different organizations or how they can help younger people, like teens and elementary school students. And I think just showing them this different world and space that a professor is very helpful. And I've started a research lab and I am so excited because I have several grants. I fund some students, but I have students volunteer just to get the experience. And I guess it's word of mouth now at this point. So I'm doing something right. So that feels really good to know that students want to learn more about not only what a professor does, but the person behind that as well. I'm curious with your research, what are some of the things that you have learned through your research on machine learning to kind of identify some of the authorship of like tweets and whatnot? Because this is a very relevant and timely topic. 
You know, funny enough, when I did my dissertation work, the thought behind it was I was inspired by the 2016 presidential election, (laughs) you know, because there was a lot of terms being thrown around. That's fake news, alternative facts. And so I was like, wow, I was like, I really want to better understand, (laughs) better understand some of this. So what I've done is I've taken a look at different groups. And when I say groups, I mean professional groups, whether it be authors, musicians, politicians, I've taken, created a data set and I've used machine learning to see out of that grouping, who can I determine more easily than another? And also what types of features are they giving me that helps me identify who they are? And so it was very interesting, some of the results, one that I thought was interesting, but it makes sense with musicians and politicians and authors and television hosts, all these different groups I had in my data set, I was initially thinking that politicians would be the most easily able to be determined, but I found out not so much. And it makes sense because they're constantly changing their views (laughs) over time. So things like that, whereas musicians are more easily able to be determined or detected, because if you think about it, musicians also have a very unique cadence or style of music and different things like that. And so I just found it fascinating. I'm working on another project right now. I can't share anything just yet. With what happened not so long ago with a certain person being suspended, I'm doing some other research because I like to know some of the impacts outside of the artificial intelligence and machine learning I like to better understand some of the impacts that social media is having in in general on society, Mm -hmm. because as we see, there are rules and terms of service that people are supposed to follow, but we see what happens when people are not policed or what happens over time if they aren't taken care of. Things can get out of hand. So this is all fascinating. And I love that we can use AI to help us with that predictive analysis and better understanding things. So it's quite fascinating. I love it. Like I said, it was all inspired by the 2016 presidential election, ironically enough. So my dissertation, I used a corpus linguistics approach called corpus assisted discourse analysis. I looked at 11 million words of data, tried to find patterns and then better understand those patterns of discourse in it. It would be fascinating. Speaking of the individual who was suspended recently, we're recording this in January of 2021, by the way. If you were to like do an analysis of how that individual's tweets have changed over time in terms of like the things that they have said, just kind of thinking out loud, but that's just me being a nerd right now. So <laughs> No, I like that. And listen, maybe you and I can collaborate on that too. I'm serious. I love this kind of stuff. It's important and it's gonna tell us a lot. Yeah. Because I don't think this story has yet finished, unfortunately. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is there's some implications of that that is going to have to be dealt with is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it's important. I'm curious, how has your own research, like looking at this specific slice of social media engagement kind of changed how you see or interact with the world through social media? Like, do you disavow all social media now or do you like go all into it or like how has it impacted that so i'm being honest a part of me is very fearful because what i don't believe you know most people realize is the only reason why people or technology is able to do what it does is because we're freely giving data constantly Mm -hmm. they don't have to pay for it we're signing up we're posting constantly giving free data for people to run an analysis on. They even had a a documentary last year in 2020 
can't think of the name of it on Netflix where they talked about social media and how it was designed for manipulation. Oh, was it Social Dilemma? Yeah, The Social Dilemma. That was it. So on the one hand, I love social media and I do use it, by the way. So I am fearful. But at the same time, through my ambassadorship, I'm realizing as fearful as I might be, because I know some other things at the same time, it's still very important to tell my story Mm. because this is the way that we communicate now. And when I say we young people, people my age, you know, more seasoned people, it is the way we communicate. So I think what I try to do and I pray that I'm doing a good job is I try to be intentional with what I say. So I don't mind sharing things, but I just try to be intentional and not just throwing something out there just callously. I try to be methodical and calculated about what I put out there. And through the ambassadorship, I'm learning that I am making an impact. So I wouldn't want to stop posting. But yeah, there's a lot that's fearful. As we see, people can tweet something and then 10 years later, somebody bring it back up. Hey, you said da 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 da. And so I'm curious to see in the future how much grace and allowance we give one another, because people are allowed to grow and change. (laughs) But it seems like people hold people to certain standards. And so I think that's one negative thing about social media. But outside of the technical side, giving people your data, they know more about you (laughs) than you know about yourself kind of thing. But yes, I do still use technology, but I do have a healthy fear of, you know, where things are going because the laws have not kept up with technology. And I'm curious to see where we're going moving forward. What do you wish more CS educators, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, what do you wish they did a better job with helping students understand with social media or technology? Just doing a better job of having students explore the implications of what they want to do or how it might affect someone else. I think for computer science, a lot of times we develop things and boom, somebody asks for something, boom, here you go. But I'm not sure that we're taking into an account all of the things that go along with that system. Like, hey, this might be for X, Y, Z. (laughs) This is a potential, you know, we need to explore other components of the work that we do to better understand. And I know that's a whole different field, but I think as we're designing things, we should take those things into consideration before we just hurry up and code something up or design something. We need to take a better account for understanding or taking time to understand our own code, (laughs) what it means before we do a handoff. And I think that would be great (laughs) if we think a little bit more intensely about those things. Yeah, especially the unintentional or even sometimes intentional biases that are built into whether it's software, hardware, whatever. How can we help students better understand or even realize like, oh, there are biases involved with this? Like even just a simple example of like scissors. Try using scissors with your left hand and it's not going to go very well. Right. I think what we're going to have to start doing, and my students don't like this very much, they don't like group work, but I do think we're going to have to find ways. I'm being honest, you know, CS is again, one of those fields where, you know, people are like, I just want to work by myself. I just want to code this up, but we have to figure out a way to do more collaboration, show people how to work better with others, because as we've seen, some of us don't play well together, but we should. (laughs) Right. Because the only way that we're going to move forward, not only in CS, you know, as a nation is when we work together. So If we can find ways to help each other, learn from each other, work with one another, despite what we want to do, which is sometimes working by ourselves, because I'm sure you've heard this before, too. My students tell me all the time, do I have to work in a group? I work better by myself. Do you really? 
(laughs) Or is it easier for you just to be by yourself? And so I think we're going to have to start pushing our students and ourselves beyond our comfort zones, which could be painful at points. But I think the outcomes of that is going to prove to be tremendous. Just working well together, more team, brainstorming, collaboration. I think that's going to help. Yeah, and that like multi-perspectival approach of let's get many different lenses or eyes looking at this from different angles so we can go, oh, we didn't think about that use case scenario. So I'm curious, on your website, you're heavily connected with the arts. How has the arts impacted your own understanding or journey in computer science? I think it all goes hand in hand. So I got the idea for Dreams Creative Group because I was helping people for free a lot. I love building websites. I love helping people's dreams you know, become realized. And so I came up with the idea, I was still working at the time, but I was like, maybe I should start my own company because I'm pretty good at this. I love doing it. I've been doing it for free for a very long time. And, you know, why not see something from the work that I'm already doing? And I don't do much with it now because I'm just too, too busy (laughs) with these grants and teaching and trying to manage life. But I think it definitely played a huge role because it allowed me to have that creative side, creative in learning more about who I am as a leader. So when you start your own company, there are some things you got to figure out and you got to figure them out fast so that you can be successful, like how to run your organization, how to have a workflow, how to meet your client's needs. And so I think I found myself with skills. I knew that I had them, but I didn't realize to what depth. And then as far as the arts, you know, with graphic design and doing website development, It was just a fun place for me. Like I said, I love hearing from people what they want and then doing the best of my ability to deliver it to them, but also giving them the information they need, which is, this is what you don't know. This is what I can do. This is what, you know, I can do, but I don't feel comfortable doing, or does this meet your vision? And so it's helped me a lot because a lot of just that is also what helps me with my course design and the way I deliver my courses to my students, the way I approach problems and the way that I see things, because I tap into that creative side. And I also, prior to that, I also play the piano. And so I know for sure with the piano that helped me with my timing, with my math and just keeping that rhythm. I think it's all Help me when I bring it all together to be good at what I do. I love all those things because I'm not a one dimensional person. I love many different things and they all contribute to what I bring to the table. Yeah, having a background in the arts, it definitely can not only inform what you do, but it's also can be figuratively and literally just therapeutic just to go through it. So highly recommend it if people are listening and don't have some kind of artistic, creative expression or outlet, like find one. There's many. I'm in total agreement with that. There's some other things I do too for self-care that aren't in the arts, but yes, it all helps bring that creativity out. Yep. So I'm a bit of a practice nerd. So you said that you play piano. So thinking of taking how you improve your piano abilities and like iterate on it over time, How do you apply that kind of practice mentality to your own abilities, either as an educator, as a researcher? So like, how do you try and improve over time? So one way that I improve is I am a lifelong learner, forever student. So with teaching, like right now I'm enrolled in a class uh, for Quality Matters. (laughs) I'm always trying to find ways to 
be better. I actually told someone yesterday, I'm never in competition with anyone else other than myself. I'm working on being the best version of me. And who I was when I started being an educator, I would like to think that I'm better now than I was then. And so I think what keeps me in that practice mode is knowing that I'm not perfect and that there's always room for improvement. And with this pandemic, my department was always a hybrid program where you could take online or in person, but I've always been more toward the in-person, but now I'm fully online. So learning how to create those engagements and fun opportunities during a time where I probably would have preferred to be in person has given me new ways to think about things and how to reach my students and how to make it fun and not just looking at a computer screen (laughs) when I'm teaching. So I think taking courses, staying engaged with other professors, other people, I ask my students lots of questions. As much as they ask me many questions, I ask them many questions as well to see how things are going to check in. But I think just taking courses, even as a researcher, sometimes I might take a, it could be Coursera or Udacity or whoever, I might take a course just to brush up on my skills. I think what people need to understand is you never get to a point in life that you just don't need to do anything anymore because everything is always evolving, especially in technology. Things are constantly evolving. What we were doing a year ago or even five years ago, we're not doing right now. So I think just being in that mindset to know, and this is actually why I chose computer science. Because I told myself one day I'm going to be the cool grandma. That's my goal. <laughs> I want to be the cool grandma one day because you know what? Technology is changing and I always want to be at the forefront and understanding or utilizing it in some way. Because unfortunately, when you don't, you get left behind, which is a lot of what the talks are about, you know, AI and technology taking people's jobs. It has not taken jobs away, but it's created new jobs. But if you don't have the skill sets to do that, then, you know, it's kind of putting you at a disadvantage. So I would say just keep practicing the same way with the piano. Play the song over and over again. I played so many songs over and over again to the point where I can literally be in my sleep and have the song memorized, me playing it. But that's when you really love something, when you just go overboard with it. But it's the same thing with computers. How I got started was with websites when I was in middle school. And I'm still like that with many things. I will love it so much. I will stay up all night long developing it until I get it just right. But that's a passion. And that's different from practice. Passion and practice are different. But my passion is is what leads me to practice constantly and to keep pushing myself to be better. Like today, you and I doing this, I'm learning from you. Even though you're interviewing me, I'm still learning from you because you're providing great insights as well. So I too am a very passion-driven individual. Like I get obsessive over learning new things. Um, I'm going to just dive deep into this and just like nonstop learning on that for months and months. But what about people who are in the field and they're like, well, I don't really know what my passion is. Like, do you have any recommendations on how to potentially find that or some questions to consider to kind of encourage people to find their own? That's a great question. I think that we have to take the same approach that we're encouraging young people to do, which is, you know, try it all. One thing that this pandemic has allowed us is more opportunity, more reach. Reach out to someone if there's a specific area. Maybe you want to be in machine learning. Reach out. I actually had someone reach out to me before the end of last year and said, hey, I've kind of been thinking about the machine learning, but do I need to do X, Y, Z, or can I just take this course? You know, and so just reach out to people, ask questions, you know, be a student again. And I think some of us are so afraid 
to do that because once we get to this certain level, it's, oh, I'm Dr. Grady, you know, I shouldn't ask questions, but no, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm going to always ask questions because that's who I am. I want to know, I want to explore. And I think we have to have that spirit of, hey, I'm okay to ask because I know that I don't know everything. And let's be honest, who wants to know everything? I think that would just be too much machine overload. (laughs) So yeah, so I would say just reach out, ask questions, do your research and just try it. It's never too late to do something completely different. A lot of the undergrads that I've worked with, they're like almost surprised to hear when somebody with a PhD is like continuing their learning in some way. It's like, but wait, didn't you finish school? It's like, well, yeah, I finished school. I finished a degree, but like I didn't finish learning. (laughs) Right. And this thing about life is, listen, we are learning every day. I learned a whole lot in 2020. (laughs) A whole lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mostly about myself, but that was still a lot. (laughs) What recommendations do you have for improving equity and inclusion in computer science education? I am taking a course right now about that very thing in computing. So Dr. Nikki Washington has created a class of sorts, the 3C Fellows, to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in CS. And so one of my recommendations is to read, learn more about what's happening. She curated this wonderful book list of books for us to read, documentaries for us to watch. I think half of the battle is sometimes we don't know, like we only know what we know. We can't understand other people's experiences or the intersectionality. Everybody's not the same. You know, just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I have the same experience as another woman, you know. Right. Number one, before we even start helping our students, we need to help ourselves. So we have to take time out to make sure that we have that lens, that lens that we need to have to understand what those three things are, how we can better apply them within our own lives. What does that look like for our students? So I would say that we need to educate ourselves because right now I feel like those three words are being tossed around a lot, but I don't think that people really truly have sat down to think about what that really means. What does diversity or equity or inclusion mean in your classroom? How can the students feel that? How can they know that that's a safe place or that you have intentionally designed the course with that in mind? And I think those are things that take some time. And so my part that I'm doing to be better is I'm in Dr. Nikki Washington's class to make sure that I have the tools that I need so that I can continue to try to provide that to my students. So I would encourage other educators to do the same. Look and see if there's a class or some type of training, because there's a lot we don't know about one another. And there's a lot we don't know about how to do this, because unfortunately, even though we should have always been treating people the way we would like to be treated, it's not what we've traditionally done. And so I just think we need to better educate and equip ourselves so that we can get better at this. Yeah, that really resonates. And if people are unsure where to start, I've got an interview with Nikki Washington. I did an Unpacking Scholarship episode where I talked about her paper, When Twice as Good is Not Good Enough. And Gloria Ladson Billings' seminal paper on like culturally relevant pedagogy. So I'll include those links in the show notes so people can at least find some places to go to that are outside of just that. But are there other like recommendations that you might give like hey go check out nc wit if you want to learn more about like gender in technology and things like that yes nc wit a lot of these other organizations and even conferences now like i know anita b and other conferences they have these types of workshops and panels that you can go to to get the information but seek them out there are people who are doing this work 
who want to help you be a better you, but I will have to provide some additional links. I'm curious, what about what research do you wish there was that could inform your own practices? So I can talk a little bit about one of the things that I'm working on, which is the autonomous vehicles work. I guess I wish there was more work done on, to be honest with you, understanding the DEI aspects or understanding the designs of these technologies. And I know people are working on those things now, but for the autonomous vehicles, that's fairly new. And so we don't quite know yet all of the you know, underpinnings behind everything. We don't really know how these different panels and systems, the user display, or how even any of this is working under the ethical considerations behind how these devices make the choices they make. So I think as we move forward in the future, I definitely would like a whole research area on that before we start getting into other things about those systems. I see it already happening, but we have autonomous vehicles now, but soon we're going to be like the Jetsons. We're going to be flying in the air beyond airplanes. I mean, just vehicles, probably. I wonder about how we're going to do all this. You know, who's thinking about these things and how does it work and How do we create the policies and rules? I think that's one thing that I don't see enough of. How are we managing this? Like even social media, we talked about it earlier. There are public policy makers and things like that, but why haven't the laws kept up with technology? Why don't we have more things into place? Why are people not following the rules? And why aren't the rules more widely available? I think that's something that I would like to see more of, if that makes sense. Yeah, my initial thinking out loud is... I imagine most of the decisions from a corporate standpoint are driven by money. And so they're often trying to find ways to circumvent the rules to just kind of do what they want to make maximum profit for shareholders and whatnot. So it's that like interesting game between politicians and corporations where they're both trying to navigate around each other. How would you finish this sentence? So I'm currently working on something I need help with blank or would really love to collaborate with somebody on blank? I would love to collaborate with someone on, as a passion thing, working on changing social media where social media can be more inclusive and equitable. I just don't really think we thought about these things and how, you know, like no one's reads the terms of service. No one's reading the policies. We're just all online. People are keeping our data. We don't know what they're doing with it. (laughs) You know, I would just really love to collaborate with someone to work on these things, work on them from not the corporation standpoint, but from the everyday user standpoint to make this better for everyone. We appreciate people designing these platforms for us, but I don't know if they were fully for us in mind. What do you feel is holding back people in the field of computer science and what could we do about it? I think a lot of what's holding people back, if I really think about it, it just depends on what standpoint you're coming from. So from one standpoint, it's what I mentioned about what we need to be doing with young people. We don't play well together. You know, everybody carves out their little piece of the pie and they say, "Mm -mm, don't touch that. That's mine. And I think that is to a detriment us not working together and understanding or even figuring things out together. Again, people normally just have an idea and somebody's like, oh, I I can do that. And not really thinking about the implications or is it the best thing or is there another way? I would say what's holding the field of computer science back is 
not taking the time out to figure out our code, not taking the time out to figure out our design, not taking the time out to get a second opinion. Just that piece. I just think sometimes we just work in our silos and we do come up with great things, but they could have been even greater had we taken the time to have somebody else take a look, contribute something to it. Yeah. I think that's what's holding the field of CS back is that DEI. We're not there yet. I think when we get there, technology is going to explode even further because everybody will be thought of. Yeah. I'm curious, like, would you recommend more conferences that specialize in that to try and draw people in? Would you recommend more publications or special issues on the topic or social media, like hashtags for people to kind of share ideas around this? Like, how could we as a field potentially address some of those areas that are lacking? Yeah, I think all of those things that you just said, I think, you know, more conferences, more trainings, more discussions. I think there is some research happening, but I don't think enough work has been done yet to really know how well it's going. Or is that a great way to approach something? I think we're getting there, but I don't want to make it seem like people haven't been talking about these things for years. I mean, they have, but I think that we've been doing too much talking and we we need to start doing now. Start holding one another accountable to some of the things that we've been talking about. Sometimes I think, you know, as researchers, you know, we're definitely good at writing and reading and doing all the things, but we need to focus more on, you know, how do we do this? How can we get this done? Maybe the conference, have a session just on that where, you know, people can share what they're doing in their classrooms or how they're helping their students understand these things better. We just need to work on that. And maybe these are things that also need to be a part of accreditation processes as well. You know, are you all following X, Y, Z? I think that once we get to a structural organizational level, it needs to come from those types of places for people to take them more seriously. So I did a little mini series on Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and talking about how it's not enough to just reflect on the oppression that's occurring. You need to actually act upon it and act against it. And so if you see a problem, like, cool, we've talked about it, but now let's actually do something to try and fix or alleviate that problem in some way. Yeah, I just think about something so small and minute is even me being in my classes and like we had to work on a group project and the guys immediately like, hey, so you take the notes and I'm going to do the coding. And I always had to say, no, you take the notes. (laughs) I'm going to code. You don't tell me what to do. But everybody's not that strong to speak up that way. Right. That's part of the, you know, things that we need to work on because everybody's not the same. So then my last question, where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? With me, they can find me. And I know my last name now is Grady. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Dr. Day. On Facebook, is the last part of the handle is Siobhan C. Day. My website is www.siobhancday.com. And even on my website, it has all the handles everywhere. Some of the organizations that I work with, if you're wondering about the If Then initiative, they can be found on Instagram, I think it's If Then Collection is their handle. Uh, Same thing for Twitter, North Carolina Central University, NCCU, Eagles. Pretty much if you follow me, you'll see me tag all these organizations because I'm working with all of them all the time. But those are the main ones. If you go to my website, you can find them there. I'm on everything. I'm on LinkedIn too. Feel free to look me up there and tell me that you were listening to the podcast. And with that, that concludes this week's episode of the CSK8 podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did and hope that you make sure to reach out to Siobhan and visit their website, which again, you can find in the show notes by clicking the link in the description or going to jaredoleary.com. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with somebody else. 
or consider providing a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. Stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode and the following week for another interview. I hope you all have a wonderful and safe week. And thank you so much for listening.